London, Ontario, known as one of the greenest and most resilient cities in Canada. Wait, what? Okay, maybe it isn't yet. That's the London Environmental Network's vision for our city. This podcast asks how close we are to realizing that vision. This is a tour of sustainability in London. I'm Molly Mixa. I'll be your tour guide. two-part episode, we're going to be talking about water health, specifically the water of Deshkan Zibi, or the Thames River, which flows through London and is arguably the center point of our city. Part one will be a discussion of the Thames River watershed and the challenges facing it. In part two, I'll be looking at sewage treatment and then exploring responsibility and connection to the water. Let's get started. So in each episode, I start with a dreamy sustainability goal the goal, the dream for the river, water that's clean enough to swim in, fish from, and drink from safely. I'll be talking about the river and the watershed with Pat Donnelly from the City of London, Karen Maskant from the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority, and Emma Young and Brandon Graham from Chippewas of the Thames First Nation. I won't be talking about the City of London's drinking water, which doesn't come from the river, but rather gets piped in from lakes Huron and Erie. Hopefully we can revisit that topic another time. So let's start the discussion with the name of the river, which I refer to as both the Thames River and Deshkanzibi. I spoke with Emma Young, Senior Environment Officer, and Brandon Graham, Treaty Research Coordinator from the Treaty Lands and Environment Team at Chippewas of the Thames First Nation. We spoke over an online platform called CleanFeed, and the audio quality in this episode's interviews is variable, I should mention. So here's Emma Young. I think one thing that's important too with the river is that we do refer to it as Deshkan Zibi. And I think Brandon can probably go into more detail in terms of it means Antler River. Or I believe there's a couple um, different stories as to why we refer to it as Antler River um, with an antlered serpent in the water or the forks of the Thames. But I think that's quite significant. and. I think Londoners are maybe becoming a bit more aware of the name Deshkan Zibi. Um, but Brandon, I don't know if you can speak a bit more to the name and where that came from and why. Um, as far as I can tell, the name uh, Aspen Zibi or Deshkan Zibi, uh, meaning the Antler River, um, comes from uh, the fact that there is many tributaries like sort of antlering out. I, I think there are other um, Anishinaabe stories, which uh, uh, accompany that name. Um, it was being used fairly early on, I believe in the McKee Treaty of 1790. Uh, they used the uh, French name for the river, River La Tranche, which predated the, the, the name of the Thames, but they also include um, Aspen Seavey or uh, the Antler River. Right now, there's definitely a push to make uh, uh, people aware that uh, the river was originally, in fact, uh, and continues to be uh, Deshkin Zibi or Ashton Zibi. And it's certainly a name that I've heard a lot, especially since the, the, the River Talks events a couple years ago. Is that a, a name that the, the various First Nations sort of agree on to move forward with, even though it's not all of their language? I haven't heard any pushback from the other First Nations about that name. 
Um, but even as Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, we're, we're referring to ourselves more now as Deshkan Zibing, um, which even our water, our water tower was painted last year. And instead of saying Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, it now says Deshkan Zibing, uh, which I believe means people along the river or the Antler, Antler River. Whether you call it the Thames, Antler River, or Deshkanzibi, the river is a shared treasure and resource, and its health is in the hands of many jurisdictions and all the people who live near it. Karen Maskant is a water quality specialist for the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. She's been there for 30 years. I spoke with Karen over the phone. Here she is, giving a basic introduction to the river's geography. Well, uh, the Thames River, first of all, is a large watershed, and um, uh, the area that London is in is influenced by the entire watershed that drains into it. Um, so it's about 3,500 square kilometers. Um, and the headwaters starting in Stratford and uh, Mitchell, uh, Tavistock, uh, drain through London. Um, and after that, the, the Thames moves on from London and goes through Chatham and into Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie. Uh, so it's part of a, a large system. And uh, the Thames is actually uh, one of the most biologically diverse rivers in Canada. The Thames actually has 80 species of fish, uh, 30 freshwater mussels, lots of species at risk. And uh, part, of a, part of that is related to our connection to the Great Lakes. So it's a big river with lots of species to protect living in it. And both the Upper and Lower Thames River Conservation Authorities are doing their best in that regard. The Chippewas of the Thames First Nations Reserve is half an hour southwest of London, downriver, so that community has a vested interest in the river's water quality when it leaves London. Here's Emma Young again with some of her concerns. There's so much going on surrounding us that's impacting the water quality, and it's frustrating, it's sad. Our community, it still is, it fishes from, like, we, people are fishing from the river, um, the river health in itself, the species within it, the deer that are drinking the water. Um, there's so much, and it's disheartening when you see all these bad effects going on in the river. And it's not just one guilty party. There's multiple within the watershed that are contributing to this problem. So one thing I'm, I'm going back to school at the moment while also working, and one idea... I'm wondering about for a thesis topic is, well, who speaks for the river? If you see the river as an entity with its own spirit, who speaks for the river or how does the river communicate that? And how do people listen to that? The brunt of this problem and these bad effects, as Emma puts it, is borne by First Nations communities. As I mentioned, the city of London gets its drinking water from the Great Lakes. But the three First Nations reserves southwest of London, Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, and Muncie Delaware Nation do not. Their water comes from the Thames River. Oneida Nation of the Thames has had an official boil water advisory since September 2019, although Oneida Chief Jessica Hill has said that it should have been in place 13 years prior. Watertoday.ca lists Muncie, Delaware Nation as having had a boil water advisory since January 2017. We're going to come back to the bad effects on the river. But first, I want to address Emma's question of responsibility. Who does speak for the river? This is Pat Donnelly. He's the Watershed Program Manager for the City of London. 
we're part of a watershed and London is in the middle of the watershed. So we, we benefit from all the good stuff that's happening up, up drift or up uh, stream. And that's what Upper Thames Conservation Authority is all about because they are managing uh, with the municipality's help, all the flow of water that comes into London. And then once it flows out of London, it's actually handled by another conservation authority called the Lower Thames. So we have the, the benefit of the work of both those uh, groups. And uh, in London itself, the biggest impact comes from upstream, obviously. We don't, uh, we don't, we're not impacted by things downstream. But again, that's uh, our responsibility is to be good stewards of the water so that those folks downstream benefit from our good work. And hopefully uh, we minimize all any negative uh, aspects that we contribute to the water quality and, and water flow as well. To add her thoughts about shared responsibility for the river, here again is Karen Maskant. To me, what's most important is that we know that not, not one agency, not one uh, part of the watershed needs to do the work. It, it is a real co combined effort that's going to keep the Thames River in a healthy state. And, and it, it's been very encouraging. Uh, we've been part of a, a process called the Thames River Clearwater Revival that um, has all the partners from... First Nations, City of London, uh, uh, conservation authorities, all the different agencies. Where we've uh, put together a plan called Shared Waters Approach for the Thames River, and uh, it's looking ahead 20 years and what all, what each partner is kind of bringing to the table to um, to accomplish the goals. We 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 put together goals that we all agree on for the the quality of water in the Thames and um, and then we're, we're all doing our own part to, uh, to move that forward. The report Karen mentions, the Thames River, Deshkanzibi, Shared Water's Approach to Water Quality and Quantity, was released in December of 2019. It's a 249-page document. I'll link to it in the show notes. And while we're on the topic of who speaks for the river, hot tip, this could be a point of discussion going forward. This is Brandon Graham again, Treaty Research Coordinator for the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation. So there's been um, concern raised over the years about the treaty boundaries between um, specifically the McKee Treaty of 1790, the London Township Treaty of 1796, and the Longwoods Treaty, which was confirmed in 1822. And that these, um, the treaty instructions only go to the river's edge, which if it is to be interpreted that way on each treaty is just to go to the river's edge then that leaves the river um unseated so to speak so there would still be in um uh, an indigenous uh, title claim or on a schnalbeg title claim to the riverbed and the waterway itself which is it's a point of research and it's something which will be discussed and negotiated and dialogues opened between um uh, First Nations and government in the future, and it should be an exciting dialogue uh, to have, but um, it'll happen in, 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 in due time, surely. Brandon went on to say that this research and discussion didn't mean anyone would be taking an adversarial approach. The point is, a lot of groups are taking responsibility for the river and speaking to each other. So what are they doing? What bad effects, as Emma Young put it, are they contending with? Here's Emma talking about one of the biggest issues. I think we're constantly frustrated, at least I am, um, with the city of London, especially when it comes to overflow 
bypasses. So essentially raw sewage is just being dumped into the river. Um, particularly after, well, typically always after large rainfall events. And of course, considering things like climate change, it seems like these events are happening, like these large uh, rainwater events are happening quite frequently. So just to sit and then see, get email after email about an overflow, an overflow bypass going into the river, of course that's not doing well for the water quality. I'm going to dive deeply into sewage in part two of this podcast when I talk to Barry Orr, Sewer Outreach and Control Inspector for the City of London. But to give you a general understanding of the issue Emma's concerned with here, the problem is this. City infrastructure transports two kinds of water. Sewage water includes all the used water coming from your home. When that water goes down the sink or shower drain or down the toilet, it's directed into sewage pipes that lead to a water treatment plant. Then there's storm water. Grates you see on streets and sidewalks collect rainwater and melting snow. In most of the city, sewage water is directed in its own channel to one of London's five water treatment facilities, where it is treated before being pumped into the river. In most of the city, storm water goes in its own channel directly to the river. In some older parts of London and many other cities, there are what's called combined sewers. Both types of water go into the same pipe and it's all routed to a water treatment facility. In the event of a heavy downpour or significant snow melt, rather than having sewage backing up into people's basements, overflow is allowed to run into the river, untreated, including raw sewage. Like other Canadian cities, London has been working to replace combined sewers with separated sewers. Here's Pat Donnelly again. London is an old city. We're, you know, 160 some odd years old now. Uh, very similar to other southern Ontario cities like Kingston, Toronto. And we have old pipes in the ground. And so one of our challenges is something called combined sewers. And even though it's an extremely small percentage of the sewer system, it's still something that we are um, replacing and separating those sewers, even as uh, recent as uh, this past summer uh, down on York Street, York and Dundas, it was being ripped up and the combined sewers were being separated and the uh, wastewater properly taken to the uh, wastewater treatment plants and the stormwater taken separately to the Thames River. A January 2020 article in the London Free Press said there were about, quote, 17 kilometers of combined sewers left across the city. We do have a plan to separate all the sewers. Why, are, why, why don't we have it done already? It's because it is costly. You know, we could, we could do it tomorrow, but we'd have to close all the libraries and not provide uh, uh, services to three neighborhoods of the city, for example. And I'm just using a wild example here. We could always improve and do it quicker if we had federal funding or upper level funding. And that is something that we, we always float that idea that, uh, you know, it can always be done faster if there's more money available. Pat's hope for federal funding, it turns out, was not in vain. On December 7th, 2020, about a month after I interviewed Pat, federal funding to the tune of almost $20 million was announced to upgrade London's Greenway and Adelaide wastewater treatment plants with the specific purpose of mitigating the effects of flooding, installing physical barriers between the river and the treatment facilities. There are other ways to tackle the problem while we wait for the infrastructure projects to be completed. For example, in older areas of the city where there are still combined sewers, 
some houses' downspouts are connected directly into the sewer system. This increases the water load on those combined sewers when there's a heavy rainfall. Disconnecting downspouts is a much easier and cheaper fix than replacing sewers. While there is no incentive program in London to do this, the city encourages homeowners to disconnect downspouts and allow the runoff water from roofs to flow into yards, gardens, or rain barrels. So how are other Canadian cities doing with their sewer separation projects? According to the group Our Living Waters, there are 269 Canadian municipalities with combined sewers. In 2013, an article in Canadian Consulting Engineer had London tied with Windsor for last place out of 12 cities in Ontario in terms of their practices for dealing with wastewater and stormwater runoff. Today, the City of Ottawa's website says that that city has 108 kilometers of combined sewers and the City of Winnipeg's page says they have 1,037 kilometers of combined sewers. Compare that to the 17 kilometers, maybe less, in London and we're not looking so bad. Then again, everything's relative, right? Any amount of raw sewage in the river when you're swimming in it, fishing from it, or drinking it is clearly too much. On that topic, local musician Jim McDonald wrote a song for his three sons called Swim, Drink, Fish. Have a listen. take a minute now to look back, see where we've come from. I asked Karen Maskant to tell me about Deshkan Zibi's health over time. We've been monitoring the Thames River since the 1960s and uh, over that time frame uh, there's been actually significant improvement in the river. Uh, we can see that there was a time frame where we did see significant improvement through the 1970s to the 1990s. Uh, part of that was um, related to a bit of a crisis in water quality in the 1970s in Lake Erie, and um, there was major algae blooms, uh, and and there was a lot of action took place to uh, to solve that problem. One of those was uh, addressing rivers such as the Thames, which was considered a main source 
of uh, nutrients getting into Lake Erie. And so a lot of work happened in that time frame around improving wastewater treatment plants, um, reducing phosphates and detergents, doing uh, more agricultural best management practices. And uh, the Thames did actually improve significantly at that time, uh, as did Lake Erie. Uh, but in the last 20 years, we've seen conditions really flatten, plateau, um, we see slower improvement in some areas where we don't see much improvement now. And what's responsible for that? We're, we're dealing with a real balancing act of uh, activities in the watershed, growth, and um, and then achievements we're making in things like improved wastewater treatment, uh, increased planting of trees, that kind of thing. So it, it's a real balance. And then just to take things up a level, how is climate change likely to affect the challenges we're already facing? We're already seeing some, some things that we, we would point to as the changing climate in the river. Uh, one of those is warming temperatures. So uh, any warming temperature uh, triggers algae blooms if there's nutrients present. And there's a 25 degrees Celsius is a real turning point in water where, uh, where you see blooms start to happen. I asked Pat Donnelly about the effects of climate change on the river and efforts being put in place to mitigate those effects. Climate change, we know it's going to be wetter, warmer, and wilder. Those are the three descriptors that a lot of people use when we talk about southwestern Ontario in general. We are surrounded by the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes are very much impacted by climate. So if we're getting a warmer climate, that means we're going to have less ice cover on the Great Lakes. And we know because we're in Snow Alley or Streamer Alley in London, we are going to have challenges in the wintertime with snow streamers, with, with storms that dump a lot of snow on us very quickly. And then in the summertime with warmer air temperatures, we know that we're going to have that humidity that is uh, famous for Southern Ontario is going to be even greater and more storms, uh, more intense rainfall. So therefore those types of conditions will impact our Thames River. So we know that we will have times where the river will flood at different times of the year than it used to and at different uh, capacity or quantities than what we have had in the last few years. Um, if you think about the major storms we've had, even in the last five years, we've, we're getting them in January and February. And that is not usually when you get a major flood. The, the big flood in London is always referred to as the 1937 flood, where there was one person killed in London. There was a number, I think it was five or six in the London area who were, who were, who were drowned. Uh, but it's the, the big one. And if you are standing at Harris Park, looking across the river at that large concrete wall that's referred to as the West London Dyke, that's the dike that protects the area directly behind, directly east, from the 1937 flood. Usually it's a spring flood, historically, that is what impacts the, uh, this area and the Thames River in London, because snow melts, and that's usually when you get the big surge of water. What we found even in the last five years is we're getting extreme floods, almost to the 1937 scale, but we're getting them in, in the wintertime.
we've been very fortunate. If you think of the city of London and the Thames River, we have this wonderful, uh, some people refer to it as a necklace of parks along the, the Thames River, which is our Thames Valley Parkway, right? Or our multi-use trail. And, and that is all floodplain land, which is a, a positive, very, you know, again, we come back to London becoming one of the Canada's greenest cities. We have a, a parkland system along the Thames River, which is second to none. And that is something that is not only wonderful for recreation, but it's also good land use planning because when the river floods, it floods our parks instead of flooding into people's homes and basements and that kind of thing. So it seems like the city's planned well in that regard. And the increased flooding we're seeing isn't leading to imminent disaster or displacement. I can say as a cyclist who uses the Thames Valley Parkway that I've seen it flooded many times. Annoying as that can be, though, it's better than having people's homes or businesses underwater. And to connect a couple dots, increased flooding also impacts the combined sewer problem. So while it's great that we have some containment around the river, combined sewers will become more of an issue over time if they aren't replaced. We've talked about some of the challenges to water health from within the city. We won't spend as much time on effects coming from outside the city, but I can say that what comes up time and again is the issue of agricultural runoff. Chemical pesticides and fertilizers, as well as erosion from agricultural lands, cause a lot of problems in rivers, including ours. I asked Pat Donnelly for his thoughts on this issue. In the vein of everything being connected, um, you know, London City Council, say, doesn't have any jurisdiction on township agricultural activities outside, mm-hmm. right? That's correct. So, so, so how, do we, how do we influence sort of, it? Yeah, well, hmm. and that's where we rely on our partners at the conservation authorities, because they do have some some sway they do have some say they have they have programs especially in in agricultural rural areas they have lots of best management practices and and research being done on how to help uh, the farming community in london we do have some participation on committees and groups that are involved in the in the wider discussion and and i i sit on a few of those as well with our farming community there is a group called the great lakes cities initiative and they've linked up with the Ontario Federation of Agriculture and asked London to be a partner in that. So we we actually sit at the table and talking about how can we reduce phosphorus getting into the Thames River, which then gets into Lake St. Clair and the uh, uh, Lake Erie and, and creates problems with algae. So we do have some uh, some voice. It's just not in a regulatory standpoint. We have to rely on our upper levels of government and other partners like the conservation authorities to help in that discussion. Emma Young has sympathy for farmers, but is also concerned about the issue of agricultural runoff. I know farmers are kind of getting um, a lot of the flack for um, maybe what they're doing to water quality. And there are farmers that are doing their best management practices. They're doing four, I think it's called four R's. and that do have an interest in the environment. And I do also think environment, or sorry, farmers are quite aware of what's going on within the environment. They're quite tuned in, um, partially because their whole livelihood really depends upon environmental conditions. There can be farmers, and there's maybe just a little bit of phosphorus or nitrogen coming off their fields. Um, but it's just, there's so many, there's so many agricultural fields surrounding us. So it's even a little bit off each field is coming together to have a larger impact. So again, 
We all need to do our part and work together to improve the river's health. And it's heartening to hear about different groups sitting at the table together. We also need to remember that other animals and plants living and traveling in and around the river don't have a choice about where they fish or bathe or drink. And they count too. Emma Young. The Thames River, it has heritage status. Um, and there's so many different species within the river um, that are very specific. I know there's spiny softshell turtles and you can't find those. Like they're, in a, they're an endangered species, they're at risk. And it is what's continuing to go onto the river. How is that species going to survive? And it's very much just as much their river as it is anybody else's. So I think it's almost also not seeing yourself as separate from nature, but a part of nature and a part of the river. And that even if there's um, a catfish in the river, it has just as much rights as we do. Agreed. So let's go back and consider, for all of us, those goals for Deshkanzibi to be clean enough to swim in, fish from, and drink from. I will say straight up that no one suggests drinking from the Thames at this point. Many people, however, do fish from the river. I'm not one of them, but I asked Pat Donnelly if there's a guide to knowing which fish are safe to eat. I must admit, I'm not a fisherman either. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a paddler. I, I go out paddling. I don't uh, put a, a drop a line in. But yeah, definitely the province, uh, Ministry of Natural Resources, puts out a, uh, a food uh, fish consumption guide. And it does talk about different species of fish, different areas of the province. And it does uh, also talk about, um, you know, if you're eating a fish every day versus eating a fish, um, you know, um, sporadically or you know once a month or you know once every six months those types of uh, details are in there just because if you do have uh, uh, water quality issues you know bioaccumulation is something that is a, a concern if you eat a lot of fish a lot of anything that has a very minute uh, amount of uh, contamination it eventually builds up in you know people's uh, bodies and livers and that kind of thing so it is uh, something that's provincially mandated that there is a, a, a fish consumption guide that is uh, is available and our fish and paddle guide makes reference to it actually so that you can actually find it online so fishing is kind of okay with some caution what about swimming emma young said she wouldn't go swimming in the water doesn't think anyone goes swimming in it Pat Donnelly, on the other hand. I know people swim in the Thames River. I, I, I've done it myself. It's not something that uh, is frequently done. There is that concern that uh, you, you could get some infections in, in, you know, eyes, nose, ears. And, you know, the, again, that's not unique to the Thames in London. Uh, there are certain times when the beaches on Lake Huron and Lake Erie are closed because of the fact that they think that there's a, a, a potential problem with infections if you, if you do dunk your head in the water. Karen Mascant says that swimming in the river is not advised because most of the river is not tested regularly. I wanted to understand why, though. And what would happen if I did go swimming? Note, I love swimming. And my sister and I grew up swimming anywhere we saw water. And so that the health risks for people, would that be if you went swimming and ingested water? Or is, would there be a health risk just from skin contact? If well, again, we, we, we don't suggest that uh, you go in uh, swimming in the river. But if they post a beach, a public beach, um, because of E. coli levels, it's because of the um, the risk that it could have 
of uh, E. coli or other pathogens that um, can give you, you know, in, intestinal um, upset stomach, those types of things. So, yeah, if you were ingesting it. But if you're, you know, waiting and cooling your feet off on a summer day, that kind of thing should be pretty safe. So, again, we don't recommend swimming uh, in the river. That exchange was kind of like a punch in the gut to me. Don't even touch the river? And while we'll talk more about the importance of connecting to the water, physically or not, in part two of this episode, for now I'll stick with avoiding pathogen-borne illness. So public beaches are thankfully tested regularly for bacteria and other pathogens. Other parts of the river, it seems, less frequently. There hasn't been a public beach or swimming area in London for years. There used to be one at the Fanshawe Reservoir, managed by the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. According to Pat Donnelly, it was closed 10 or 12 years ago because it could not be safely maintained. That's even with the help of an ultraviolet fence, a polyvinyl curtain that used UV to purify the water inside the swimming enclosure. Interesting. So as Karen said, there's a lack of testing, and without it, we can't safely swim in the Thames. Been learning a lot about the Thames River, but I still want to know how it measures up to others in Canada. I'd like to think there are others that are in better health. And it seems one river is doing better. The Thames River in England is widely regarded as the cleanest river in the world that flows through a major city. So perhaps the original Thames can be our inspiration. In terms of other Canadian rivers, though, I found comparative data a bit hard to come by. One source of information is the World Wildlife Fund. Since 2017, they've been releasing watershed report cards. The reports show that most of the watersheds along the U.S. border have very high threat levels, and the threat levels are reduced as you go north in Canada. The introduction to the 2020 World Wildlife Fund report says, quote, The twin crises of accelerating biodiversity loss and climate change are a devastating test for natural systems that were already at a breaking point. Well, that's a terrible note to leave things on. So this is Pat Donnelly answering my question about how we can get to a better place. I do have this vision of, you know, in an ideal world, being able to to run down to the river on a sunny day and just jump in head and all. <laughs> um, can you imagine that as a reality and what would need to happen? Yeah, I think it's always good to have a, a vision or a goal for that kind of thing. As far as for that to happen uh, in London specifically, we would need to have the the uh, a huge change in our agricultural practices upstream. For example, um, the amount of fertilizer that's still being used without using other types of, of uh, fertilizer like manure and, and, uh, and the, the resources that they actually have, um, that is, uh, I guess, a first step. That would be so, you know, having the water moving, coming into London in much better shape than it already is. Then the other aspect would obviously to have all the opportunities in London uh, repaired, fixed, changed, whatever the words are, so that we don't have any combined sewers, so that we don't have any uh, residential areas that still have downspouts that are going into our sewer system and overwhelming our, our wastewater system. Having uh, a citizenry that is uh, acknowledges the river as being 
part of their responsibility. You know, they're understanding their connection to it through the stormwater system and understanding that the river, especially with climate change, is going to be a really valuable asset. If you think of a, a warming uh, atmosphere and, and a warming climate, the river has its own micro microclimate. It's the area where it's much cooler possibly because of the vegetation along it, but also just because of the microclimate that is around it. So with an, an urban center with all the concrete and pavement and what's referred to as an urban heat island, the river will be definitely a sanctuary for those, uh, those times when we're dealing with heat waves, when we're dealing with the times where people are trying to, to get away from the, the heat of the city and potentially maybe the you know, lack of air conditioning in some areas. That is something that the river will, will provide and supply. If we look after her, she'll look after us. Thanks, Pat. Thanks also to Emma Young, Brandon Graham, and TJ Alber from the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, and Karen Maskant from the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority for their thoughts on the river. This podcast is a production of the London Environmental Network. The theme music is courtesy of archesaudio.com, and I'm Molly Mixa. Here again to send us out is local musician Jim McDonald with a little more of Swim, Drink, Fish. Thanks to you, Jim. Then we all gotta help one another And share it with our sisters and our brothers Cause I see it in your eyes And I know you're getting wise And you find